the subject for the evening talk is the paradox of experience. One of the lovely things about the, the Dharma, the, the spiritual teachings, is in a way that it endeavors to leave no stone unturned. And it shows itself in the respect and the reverence for life, and initially that uh, being revealed as the uh, ethical guidelines which are a direct contribution to human beings for our welfare and benefit, and also, and equally important, for the welfare and benefit of others. It also shows itself, these spiritual teachings, I think in a very uh, significant and, and profound awareness of mind-body activities and of the direct witnessing and examination of the psychological processes, the way that thought con constructs our views and opinions, the way that the emotions and intentions and feelings coagulate with thought to generate our experiences and our interpretations of experiences. And so the teachings highlight and emphasize very, very directly the working with and the looking and the facing of experience and therefore offers immense opportunity for us as a very practical and direct psychotherapy, as a mode of healing of mind and body. But the teachings also include as well the various depths of meditation in which in the quietitude of being, when there is relaxation and calmness in our inner life, that exposes for us various qualities and depths of contentment which can run very, very deep into the psyche. And sometimes for us rather inaccessible because of movement, because of preoccupation, because of uh, the formative and familiar experiences of our everyday life. Along with all of this as well, the, the teachings are of course a, a philosophy as well, but a philosophy not in so much as a, a scheme of metaphysics or as a theoretical idea about the nature of life, but a philosophy in which the philosophy is very much connected to the truth of experience, the truth of perception, the truth of the, the way we relate to this world. And so this combination, shall we say, of ethics, of meditation as a tool for psychotherapy and healing, as a means for going uh, deep into our being, and a philosophy of life which is grounded in awareness and wisdom, in tolerance and com compassion. All of that 
is a way of drawing together, we might say, every single resource that you and I may have as a human being, not just to apply that to our day-to-day -day life or into the intensity of our spiritual life here, but for one essential purpose, and that is for enlightenment. Not for itself, not to cultivate a path, not to develop important and invaluable spiritual disciplines, not to cultivate a series of long-standing and invaluable practices, as useful and as invaluable as they may be, but rather for awakening, for the emancipation and the immediacy of liberation of a human being. And that is always the, the heart, the soul, the, the very center of all of this. And sometimes, and for the whole variety of historical and contemporary uh, reasons, that the very soul, if I dare use that word here, the very soul of the teachings, the very heart of, of the teachings, sometimes have got, I feel, a little obscured, somewhat uh, forgotten, or the significance of the realization put, as it were, at some way in the future, some time ahead of us. And I think it's a, a pity if we think in those terms and, and believe in those terms, because in a, in a way, it, it rather undermines us. In a way, it, it rather reduces the immense and wondrous capacity of each and every human being to live an enlightened life today, to understand what that means, so that any statement that any mystic has ever said, any spiritual realized one has ever said of past or present or future, one can hear what is being said or read what has been written on and recorded and one says, yes, I know exactly what that means. Yes, I know that has been, that, that, that I confirm that through my realization, through my understandings, through my, in, through my enlightenment. And so the teachings have, have said consistently to to us. Yes, the relative is of value, path and practice and all that is conceived and goes with it. But it shouldn't be the predominant. It shouldn't have an exaggerated place in our concerns. Something else should, and let us keep that, whatever word we feel comfortable with, the finding of God, we might say, let us keep that at the heart of it. And since with deep ethical considerations for life, a life which we might say a moral life, with a life which is one of mindfulnesses and awarenesses and consistent access to the moment-to-moment -moment life, with depth, with wisdom and compassion and that uh, profound practical philosophy which takes place, putting all that together, we may say that the thread which runs through all of that is our experience. We confirm through our experience. So we're not asked to b b believe in something of, of the future, 
we're not, uh, we're not asked to believe in something in afterlife, nor in uh, an abstraction in any way, but say, what actually is my experience of things? And then, in that, when we look at our experience from one day to the next, what we say to ourselves and we consistently describe with each other is a whole variety and range of experiences. And in that, we also categorize these experiences, the pleasurable ones and the painful ones and the ones that fall in between, so to speak. With those range of experiences, there are some of them which we highlight frequently. And our very communicating, our very observation of them gives them for us a special kind of place. And the, and the very concept and the very language and form and position which we adopt makes a certain experience significant for us. It gains a kind of compartmentalized existence. And so sometimes we actually refer when we are asked about ourselves and when we talk about ourselves, sometimes rather habitually We'll, we'll refer to the same experience. And sometimes we have a habit with some, with some forms of experience of consistently describing ourselves in such terms. And so we sometimes think of other people and we, and we often like to talk about a, a third person. It seems to be so much easier than talking about ourselves or talking about or with the person who is front of us. So we need the rest of the planet to avoid this. And we talk about somebody else. And when we talk about them, we will often agree to talk about some particular feature of that person, what he or she is like. And there's an isolation which goes with it, just as we do it with others, as we do it with ourselves. Is it that the experience that we define ourselves by too often and too frequently, is that actually accurate? It's as though sometimes we say, oh, I am an angry type. I am a fearful type. I am a giving type. I am a needy type. I am a generous type or whatever. Is sometimes the habit dominating to such a degree that actually that isn't the norm. And that if we are looking and witnessing our experience very, very carefully and res respectfully, we might have to start actually regarding that there isn't a norm. That there is no particular experience which can be consolidated. And I think sometimes what we have with us is the habit. And it's the habit of seeing the rise of a particular experience, especially the unpleasant ones, of course. We see the rise of it, and we forget the fall. And what we're left with is the memory, the thought, and we carry that as an idea of who we are. And the Buddha, in this, he said very, very beautifully and succinctly. He said, and sometimes we as uh, in 
teachers perhaps forget this, unfortunately. He said, one is aware of what is present. And of course, we're speaking this very much ad nauseum, day in, day out here. One is aware of what is present. But he also said, and what is often forgotten, he said, one is aware of what is not present. One is aware of what is not present. So sometimes, when we are able and have the capacity to see the fall of the experience, meaning experience isn't present, particularly I'm talking here the unsatisfactory forms, let us be clearly aware that this experience, which I think about, I trouble myself over, I worry about, or I uh, indulge in, or whatever, the times when I am not having any of that, I can't feel that anywhere in, with me, or inside of me, or uh, around me, that it's not operating, let me know that it isn't. Let that awareness of that be as clear to me, and as obvious, as those times when I am aware of the, un of the presence of something. One is aware of what is present, and one is aware of what is not present. And the awareness of what is not present matters. It shows space, it shows something. In this range of experiences, and in the highlighting of them, of course some experiences do repeat, do have a certain intensity to them. We can't just put them aside. We can't just let them go or drop them, no matter how much we hear the spiritual rhetoric. And in such situations where something is consistently repeating itself, it says to us, in a way, this needs to be addressed. What is to be done with this? That sometimes, as the talk uh, was, was being said in the talk yesterday evening, that sometimes means that we need the wisdom which is, no, which is not just of ourselves. We need the wisdom, wisdom from which is around us as well, and that is part of one's duty in life to share the wisdom. But then there are the range of experiences too, which are heartfelt. Heartfelt in a warm way, heartfelt which are touching to us. And those heartfelt experiences which, which occur can occur somewhat freely of circumstances. And this is very significant to acknowledge, to take example. One of the common concerns, maybe complaints as well, and well, on the retreat situation, is that despite the number of people, there's no real human contact taking place. Some uh, teachers, and I am uh, not of that uh, school, do say to people on the retreat as part of their instructions that there not only there's no physical touch and contact during the retreat, but also there is no eye contact either. And I assume in part that part of the purpose of that uh, intention that it adds a little bit more discipline to one's meditations and also may, shall we say, uh, 
guard against this kind of uh, reaching out to uh, another person for communication, for feeling, for acceptance, or whatever. But I, if I may say, never, I'm almost going to say into my last breath, but I shan't be so ambitious, but never will I uh, give such a, uh, instruction. And, and therefore I say eye contact has an appropriate connection. With that, the person may, during the course of the day, make eye contact with somebody and some warmth is extended to another person as one pass, pass by. All sorts of motives and possibilities could be there after the retreat, etc. We know all that. <laughs> and this con contact is, is there in the giving of warmth. It doesn't obviously ensure in any way that what is given will be reciprocated and will be returned. But all of the part of the work of exploration is that communication, in this case, in the silence, and to see, if there are responses, what the reactions are. But still, having said that, people will say there's very little real contact and communication. And thus can contribute at times to the feeling in one's experience of feeling separate and feeling isolated. The feeling of separation, the feeling of isolation, because, as we were seeing in the inquiry this afternoon, that sometimes it's because we have an habitual way of overcoming this feeling. I feel isolated, I feel separate. It's through the contact, in a specific and clear terms, that this will change this experience for me, and therefore I won't feel separate, I won't feel alone, I won't feel detached from the others. And we can, and we know from our experience, our life can be spent rather looking for that kind of confirmation and affirmation. What if we say to ourselves, let me not go down that familiar road. I've done that many, many times. That has given me some short-lived feeling of comfort and security and knowledge that I am loved, that I am trust, that I'm trusted, that I am acceptable. What would, is there another way that one can feel closeness, feel intimacy, in a very direct and immediate way, which isn't dependent on the individual, which is, in the kind of language of the teachings, non-self. Not looking for a self to make that happen. How could that show itself? How could that be felt? How could that be communicated in the silence in which there isn't the touch, there isn't, or very, very little verbal communication. There, is, there isn't the uh, intimacies that can take place through people being together in the normal way of things. So that's kind of put aside for us. Where is the, where, which, which way can we experience the closeness? And sometimes we 
We know that upon arrival in the initial experience and in the first day or two, it can seem very scattered, very diverse, extremely fragmented. One can feel quite disconnected. Yet, in the very process of things, people report second day, third day, fourth day. Yes, I am settling into the situation. Yes, I feel more at home, if the concept home is a happy concept. If I, <laughs> I, f <laughs> I feel more at home in the, in, the, in, the, in the situation. I feel more connected in the situation, so that something has been, not for everybody, has been changing since the arrival and at this point today. One can't quite explain what it is, but something in one's experience is revealing more of a connection. And it hasn't necessarily been through the instrument of one individual or one into two individuals actually coming to confirm us. It's happening in a different kind of way. I say this which is happening in a different kind of, of way is something precious. And it can be found anywhere, anytime, any situation. This intimacy, it doesn't even require human beings for this discovery. So sometimes when we are faced with the, the sense of something is missing in ourselves, the feeling that that which is missing can only be fulfilled by or through another, and therefore the action goes that way, perhaps in that moment to see if there are enough resources with us to be able to stop, to be still and to ask oneself, do I have to go the way which I usually go to, to fill the hole? Because in a way, the usual route through self to self, that usual route will never, ever fill the hole. Never. And it's just a temporary event. And if in the filling of the hole is a temporary event, the consequences of it is that within a day or minutes or whatever, the same need arises again. We go the same way again. It's constantly trying to fill the hole and the hole by definition cannot be filled. It just passes straight through. It's just a temporary relief. So if we, as I say, if we know we keep going that route, then it is time to stop and say, is there another way from what I usually do, from what my usual responses and usual reactivities are? And this other way, this other possibility is the key to liberation. It's the key to an enlightened life. And it's available for us. We hear in the tradition, as I was speaking just at the beginning of the talk, very, very much of the, the immense value of spiritual experience and the 
the range of spiritual experiences. And certainly in the processes of uh, this way of life, in contemplative exercises, in wholehearted witnessing to the immediacy of a tangible existence, it also, and through exploration, through talks, through uh, one's own reflections, which can arise quite spontaneously, through the circumstances of the nature, through dialogue, many forms, all of those can be and are and have the potential as a wonderful catalyst for realization. In the various experiences, as I say, the wide range of experiences, one thing which we know about those experiences that they don't feel abstract. They don't feel like a, a set of clever conceptual ideas. One would say of oneself, in experience, this has touched me. I have been touched by this, this whatever it might be. The touching of us, in terms of spiritual experience, religious experience, can come through any of the sense stores. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Through any of those, when in the receptivity, we can be touched in such a way something stands up for us, something comes clear for us, something we are affected in some way by something and we appreciate that we are, we are glad for that experience. But also it can come not through this, just through the sense doors, but also come quite spontaneously inwardly as well. And sometimes it's as though in the quietness when nothing is happening in that very time experience can take place there's some revealing, there's some uh, exposure, there's a, a sense of something which isn't ordinary. It's not like just being mindful for a moment. It's not like doing a little bit of meditation. It's not like just being committed to the form of sitting and w walking or doing one's practice or whatever. That sometimes, for some people, the form, the way of experience is such that the experience brings its own insight. It brings its own discovery. And the tradition, uh, important and in invaluably, has emphasized this again and again. Sometimes, and some of you have said, that may have occurred at some point in the past past earlier today, past another retreat, past another time in, in one's life. With the experience that takes place, sometimes we are rather infatuated by the strength of the sensation that goes with it. In other words, we think if we have an experience and all the bodily cells are shaken up, if it feels very intense and dramatic, if it is in stark contrast to the ordinary, everyday mind, the likelihood, the tendency is to give that form of spiritual experience a special kind of place. 
we would say, this happened to me, we will possibly, hopefully, we'll feel free to talk about it, we'll, we'll, we'll describe that which took place. And the language tends to, how we describe, tends to reflect the size of the sensation. And we hear of the words enlightenment, the words awakening, the words realization, the words mystical experience, the words discovery, or whatever it might be. And sometimes the association with that is that it means the experience would have to be particularly different, therefore it would have to be dramatic. And one has, for many have, a kind of idea or an image that if I'm to be a realized human being, if I'm to be an emancipated person, an enlightened person, and certainly not to be afraid of this concept uh, in enlightenment, that if that's then something dramatic has to happen in the form of experience so that it's not theoretical and it will make such a significant change to my life that the experience or the moment will stand out uniquely in my experience, in my existence. And to some degree, this view has, unfortunately, its origin in an unfortunate event under the Bodhi tree two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> The, the description, and those, if anyone has read the, read the text, one feels, as I feel, I don't want to go too much into the, the, the tradition here, but one feels that the tradition has felt a need in itself to exaggerate what took place under the, the Bodhi tree in a way which Gautama himself never, ever intended, never implied, and certainly never wanted nor encouraged. And the very fact that in 45 years of teaching, from the age of 35 to 80, he spoke about his experience under the Bodhi tree a handful of times on there shows how little he wanted to, emphasis he wanted to place on that experience. The fact that it took place under, the under a tree, the fact that it was supposed to be on the full moon, the fact that it was uh, supposed to have happened in, medi in meditation or whatever, has lent historically a lot of additional weight, meaning baggage, <laughs> to meditation as being the core of the teaching. Through meditation one becomes enlightened. When one actually looks at the text, when one actually, and if I may say as a servant of the, of the Dharma, that, that what one sees through one's, one's uh, working with people and the privilege of contact with, with people, yes, experiences of course occur in meditation, they occur outside of meditation, 
that if one was to, as it were, come down in the final and say, well, where does the realization tend to take place? And for the most part, one finds they tend to take place through the Dharma teachings themselves, listening to the Dharma of life, the Dharma of enlightenment, or through the one-to-one dialogues, inquiry. And that to some degree, the meditations themselves, in themselves, present the opportunity for realization and discovery. Yes, of course, and that has been confirmed through many, many uh, traditions and spiritual practices. But equally, that same confirmation is available and is realizable right in the process of the listening itself. And certainly, in the, in the way of the, the Buddha, as a, a servant of the Dharma him, himself, what one sees again and reads again and again, that while giving the teachings, while sharing the, the Dharma with people, that the insights and the realizations were occurring in the process of the listening. Things became clear, and for some, unshakably clear, which is what is called enlightenment. Unshakably clear. So then we ask ourselves, and we, and this is a very uh, major and vast area, when, when we ask ourselves, yes, we make ethics, we make meditation, we make listening to uh, the Dharma and the insights into our being, into the nature of self or ego important. We are interested in the experiences, we are interested in those experiences which have what we might call a, a spiritual feel to them and the way that they manifest. Is, however, the prioritizing, the highlighting of experience itself that necessary. Though we don't want to be in the abstract or in the theoretical and lost in any of that, could it be that in our relationship to the living process of things, could sometimes we place too much on experience? Without drifting into metaphysics and cerebral activity, could the experience gain a bit too much substance to it, so to speak? That, that somehow or other we, need, we are looking or we need some kind of experience to confirm something about realization, about being a, a, a genuinely free human being. And that's where a little bit is of the paradox begins to come. Because some people will say, and I may say as a um, person involved in uh, spiritual life, like uh, many of you, you here, and have this immense opportunity and joy to listen to the experiences of others, one of the things which has uh, been confirmed to me uh, through, through the years and through thousands and thousands of uh, people is that, the, as it were, the momentum of the experiences, the size of the experiences, the uh, 
uh, expression of them, the, 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 the quality of the sensation, we might say, in unusual experiences which occur for people, either here or elsewhere, actually isn't the important thing. It isn't the important thing. And yet sometimes what one finds is there's a kind of rejection which is taking place in which one's saying to oneself, my experience right now is nothing special. What's going on with me in this moment or during this day, it seems very, very ordinary. Nothing unusual is happening. I don't have any idea of what you're talking about, spiritual experience. What's that, religious experience? What's that, mysticism? I can't even spell the word. <laughs> so sometimes one has that response. Some have that response as a valid response, an authentic statement in spite of one, two, five, ten, fifteen years of practice, spiritual practice and retreat. And is one going to say to oneself, therefore, since I've never had any of these altered states of consciousness, since I've never had any of these spiritual experiences which you imply or refer to, since nothing of strong um, sensation which is incredibly revealing and it's full of light or whatever hasn't actually occurred to me, does it mean I'm either doing something wrong, I'm just a novice and it's going to take endless lifetimes, <laughs> or is it just a matter of sitting, hanging in, and if I'm patient enough, and if I'm letting go enough, that there might be enough grace around that it will just come and, and it will be my turn because the nature feels sorry for me. <laughs> really. So, sometimes... <laughs> you laugh, yeah, but anyway. So... <laughs> Um, those who laugh loudest will... <laughs> they're the ones I'm talking to. <laughs> so, sometimes there's the forms of experience which are taking place. There's, there's the feeling of nothing special which is happening. We look at the flow and rhythm of our daily, day-to-day -day life, and we might say of our experience in our daily life, well, many, many moments of the day, countless moments of the day, seem and feel, and think, and are ordinary. And we hear too that sometimes there have been in a person of a person's life some uh, dramatic experiences in the religious terms and expressions of that, and very high-flowered descriptions as well of those experiences and it seems that the consequence of that hasn't been liberating, it's actually worked against the person. It's produced more grasping, more arrogance, more identification, more clinging, and the self has got even bigger after these religious experiences than it was before it. And it's not unusual, and we've been many tragedies in the spiritual world of this. So I say, there's... there's 
ordinary, everyday experiences of which nothing is outstanding about it. And we tend to sometimes ride roughshod over that, roughshod over the most ordinary thing, the most everyday characteristic. And thus I say, what's the space like at that time? What's that showing of itself? What's the communication when the experience is hardly noticeable, hardly, hardly worth bothering about? It doesn't really invite a great deal of awareness. It doesn't really grab us. It doesn't really compel us to really look at it. It's just so familiar, so ordinary, and it's a genuinely non-special, non-non-special event. Since that's not unusual for us, since it's a familiar thing to human beings near and far, could it be that realization, awakening, actually doesn't depend on an experience. It doesn't require something special to happen to us. That an awakened person, an enlightened person, can say honestly and can say truthfully, I don't remember anything happening. I don't remember any significant experience. I don't remember any moment of profound change. I have no recollection of this at, at any, any time in meditation, in listening to the Dharma, in sharing the Dharma, in the nature, in the, the world of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or experiencing. can't remember anything happening. And therefore the paradox keeps revealing itself. The paradox of one person who can say and say in a way of this I experienced, I was changed by this experience, it, it transformed my life and, and that shows itself subsequently in, in wisdom in life, in an emancipated life, in a, in a kind and uh, compassionate life without any effort, without any uh, feeling of will or necessity. And for another person, he or she can, can say, I can't recall any such event in my life. can't recall any moment which was dramatic uh, like that person has had. And yet, whatever something has happened and that something has happened is such that one's life is a free and liberated life it's a life of kindness and compassion and wisdom and an immense sense of awe about all this. And so thus we find ourselves with this paradox. We find ourselves with a situation that we can't use experience as such as an absolute yardstick. For some the experience may be the significant and wonderful turning point in your life. And for another, 
one can't recall such an event, yet the turning point has been made. It's part of this extraordinary, palpable mystery. And surely all of that can only bring from us a, a, a wonder, a, a humility. May all beings explore experience. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be enlightened. Have a couple of quiet minutes, please. <laughs>